hey everyone welcome back to the it's a mind game podcast my name is jade and today i'm so so excited to be introducing you to the wonderful Jacqueline Byrne, who is a clinical psychotherapist who specializes in eating disorders, body image, and anxiety. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jade. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so happy. And a few of our listeners might already be familiar with you because you've been doing some lives with Claudia on the HA recovery page there with her. And you've been covering some really in-depth conversations that sort of intertwine beautifully with um, the HA and ED space. And I was hoping before we dive into our conversation today, could you possibly define for us what a psychotherapist is in compared to say a psychologist and also how you've built up your, your specialty in eating disorder? Absolutely. It's a really important question. It's, um, it's an interesting question. So in practice, Psychology, psychotherapy, social work, counselling, um, coaching can all look very similar with um, talk therapy supporting someone's recovery or working towards specific goals. Psychotherapy is a discipline that um, is the, the one of the older origins from the conceptualisation of what psychology has come to be and essentially the cornerstone being the relational component between client and therapist. So in psychotherapy, we really value the importance of feeling safe in that relationship, of feeling respected and heard, and having a genuine connection with your therapist being really important. We look particularly at how the relational styles we've experienced in life tend to play themselves out again, um, which does impact my lens on eating disorders and the way I've come to understand eating disorders which I really enjoy talking about we might elaborate on a bit later but as opposed to say strictly psychology takes more of a behavioral lens and so it's using a a modality that um, is often skills-based for behavioral change and that that might be um transpired between um, client to client and the, the therapist would still personalize that and um, hopefully check in that that person was uptaking it and feeling safe but psychotherapy tends to really cornerstone that and a discipline like social work then tends to lean more into the social political understanding of systems in place that impact us and so they all have their place and we do end up often overlapping because um those ways of understanding humans are all very relevant to an overall experience. I really thank you for defining that for one, because I know that's a question that pops up a lot. Um, but I really like the, the difference between the psychology side of things and psychotherapy is that emotional sort of relationship that presents itself. Because if it's one thing that is quite common with women that I've spoken to on the podcast, friends and family, or even personal experience, that one of the biggest barriers to particularly ED recovery is this idea that you just need to take whatever step and then keep taking another and keep taking another until you're at a destination where you are recovered. And I personally believe that that's a really awful way to treat someone who's going through an eating disorder, despite I'm sure their intentions are pure and coming from a really good place because that's obviously what they've been taught. But um, I do believe that eating disorders are so heavily linked into so many other facets of our lives that our relationships, our jobs, our families, um, personal perceptions, um, you know, even finances and 
it, literally every single little aspect that comes about. I was wondering if you could maybe explain or talk about what you've experienced with some of your clients in the past that they might come to you going like, it's just the food. I just can't make myself eat. But then all of a sudden we start digging into things a little bit deeper and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I actually, I hate my job or maybe I'm in an abusive relationship and my eating disorder behaviors aren't actually about the food, but everything to do with this wonderful shield that protects me from all of these things that I'm not ready to face right now. What comes to mind is really flipping that idea of evidence-based practice to practice-based evidence because coming into the space with a formulaic approach, all the eating disorder experiences are incredibly unique and even though domains you've just spoken to, the percentages perhaps of those that impact any individual, the ratio of those can shift so much or really be about trauma for one person and for the next person be a product of a, a, a social systematic uh, experience and for someone else something completely different as well. Maybe they've had digestive issues and food's been difficult their whole life, they've had illness and it's more of a physiological experience that is really the cornerstone of what they've come to know. So when we, when we impose that in isolation from who they are, it's not only often unhelpful, but it actually is silencing and can be further oppressive to what the eating disorder itself is doing. So that, that is something I feel really passionately about. And within psychotherapy, I've, I've done further study in something called narrative psychotherapy, which is something I love to talk about and I try not to talk about it forever (laughs) but it's it's um, a philosophy that holds it from a postmodern perspective that we are all combinations of so many experiences and so many ideas and for the first umpteen years of our life essentially that story is written for us and we're told you're a good girl you're easy you're smart or you're naughty you're difficult or you're just not good at that or you'll just never have that kind of body or you do have this kind of body people are going to understand you in this way by the time we come into where we're developmentally capable of owning that process the stories are already so strong that we can't we're unlikely to be able to separate from them without a lot of support in gaining our awareness and having experiences that perhaps counter what we've been told about what we are even from society it might be family it could be from so many different spaces that that's reinforced Mm -hmm. so narrative therapy really looks to first deconstruct the ideas that we've made up about ourselves and perhaps about something like an eating disorder, that it's just what we need to do or how we're going to have to interact with the world to get the results that we want to be high performing or to be of a certain body size, whatever that might be for an individual and look at empowering them to restory that in a way that has purpose and meaning in their life and isn't pre-prescribed. So when I, my um, background prior to coming into psychotherapy was in English literature and I, um, unsurprisingly, as we walk through this, have a very um, strong interest in, I think when I first went into studying English, it was the stories of people that really drew me in and a fascination with different walks of life and experiences we can have and ways of making sense of the world and finding meaning and purpose and also the the symbols and motifs and metaphors that come through most of our lives and show up in different ways again and again through different iterations of our life experience. Mm -hmm. 
So when we look at that for someone with an eating disorder, as you were saying, it so often doesn't stay a conversation that's solely about food or body size or weight or exercise. It becomes a conversation that's often a, a way of understanding the dynamic we've set up between us and the world that can mm. show up in the way we experience finances or relationships or work at anything really. And from there, I think we're most truly re-empowered to build the life that we we find the most meaning in living. Mm. That sort of having the story read to you about your own personal identity and, and who you need to be in order to succeed in the world, um, it's definitely something that pops up a lot and it falls hand in hand a lot with the, the people-pleasing personality types, which we tend to see in um, a lot of people who are suffering with eating disorders because it's like, okay, well, over X amount of years, I've learned that I need to be happy all the time. I need to be energized and energetic and I need to study a lot or work really hard or show how disciplined I am at every given moment. And as a result of doing all of these things, everybody likes me and I like it when everybody likes me. So here's my blueprint. And I guess that's where the awareness sort of comes into things that we can live our life for so many years, not knowing that a lot of our decisions are coming from a prescription that we've received from our audience around us. And even though a lot of that's come from really good intention, because we've sort of picked and pecked out tiny little things, when all of those little things come together, it can be messy because suddenly it's like, okay, well, if you're allocating all of this space to what you think everybody needs you to be and you've got say 50 people really important to you in your life where's that little bit of space for you to shine and just be your authentic self mm -hmm. and with that in mind have you ever given yourself the space to really shine and be your authentic self and I guess I want to be careful with the word shine because part of that's the disorder isn't it it's like we have to shine all the time but it could be that's almost the the demon in the closet which is but if I'm myself people might see that I'm really mean to myself and I do get angry and maybe I want to be a little bit lazy I just want to sit on the couch and then suddenly all these perceptions and questions arise that are really really confronting because how do you find yourself in a world where you've always been everyone's version of what you should be so beautifully said I loved the language you used around the prescription from society and adhering to that which it really doesn't give us much counter evidence to other versions of us being accepted which they hypothetically they well may be but we don't know that because we've never shown them and the the space and the, the risk then when this system is established and we may be into a career by this point or into a relationship or have responsibilities so the the sense of risk in exposing those other parts of us feels often very scary and even us knowing they're there mm -hmm. like so often people will say to me and I would have said at a point in time like I'm just not an angry person. I just, I don't really get angry. Mm -hmm. I really thought I didn't at one point in time. And that's probably the scariest thing of all, but it's, it's been that such a foreign idea to us because we've, we've fragmented it and we've disowned it um, that we, we then put so much into upholding these ideas that 
are getting preferable social feedback. And when we were speaking earlier to how treatment itself can re-silence people, it's it's part of this experience that has been silencing, that if you mm. consider this layering in the situation someone's in where they feel like such a curated version of themselves is what they have to uphold, then not having a space for that alternate voice to come out becomes increasingly dangerous. Yeah, do you, I guess, have you sometimes witnessed that when people who are going through an eating disorder of some sort are to define themselves as what their good qualities are from their perspective, that it can be quite a difficult question to answer because I, I know that's something that come about through my journey of trying to sort my thoughts out and um, it's such an important part of the process of healing but it definitely is confronting, confusing and sometimes it just feels like it, just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, have you found that amongst clients? Yeah, like it's really what we're talking about is identity and that's a massive thing in psychological health and the threat to our identity is something will almost will protect at almost any cost. I do find it interesting often when carers, parents, loved ones, partners speak to me about the person with an eating disorder. They'll use very different language to the person um, that's going through it, and the, the language that's used around them is often reinforcing a, a lot of those ideas of mm. high-performing, perfectionistic, well-liked, like lovely, mm. delightful, bubbly, friendly. These um, ways of knowing this person and also I feel like it's important to say it's often the expectation that that will be the self that re-emerges through recovery there is a you know that that personality does kind of work for everyone around them as well like it's um it's a way of being in the world that's easeful for our companions it's part of why that reward is so reinforced when the person going through an eating disorder experience talks about themselves, they can often recognise that that's how they're perceived, but it doesn't feel like a reliable sense of self or they might have a sense of being a bit of um, a fraud or that imposter syndrome idea because they know that under the people pleasing, under that mark they managed to get at uni or the promotion mm -hmm. they managed to get through, it kind of feels a bit like a fluke because they know that there's these other parts of them, these other experiences that don't get airtime, which because of their the nature of how much of a shadow they're in, feel like they can take over and maybe take away all those good things and all the affirmation very easily. And it is really that positive reinforcement that makes it difficult to explore the idea of a new identity because, um, you know, to a degree, we just want to be loved and accepted. And if the way we're currently living hasn't got any bumps in the road, everyone's happy to be around me and they've never had a complaint. I'm always the person they like to talk to and have a laugh with. And, you know, I'm that person. The idea of bringing to the forefront other personality traits or other identities, it done what it feels like anyway you're running the risk of being shunned from the group because what happens if I I don't want to have that deep and meaningful conversation what happens if I really need to just go have a nap or maybe I'm having a really emotional day so I'm more than happy to talk to you tomorrow but just for today I, I need some peace with myself and I guess when we start to explore what we what we think we need what we know we need because I think they sort of 
creep up. It's never just, oh, that's what I need. I'll just change it. It's kind of a blimp that the person might keep to themselves and not share. And then conversations keep presenting themselves and they finally have the confidence to go, oh, I actually wouldn't mind not um, playing soccer one day or I, I actually wouldn't mind not going to mum and dad's place for dinner just one day a week. And it takes time to even just have that present itself, the ability to say no, let alone the idea of, well, what's my coach going to think if I don't turn up for soccer? What's mum and dad going to think if I say no to going to dinner? Because then we've got the idea that we could hurt somebody's feelings. And, well, whose feelings do we prioritise now? Do I look after myself because I know this is what I need to have some rest, have some peace to recover from my eating disorder? Or do I just suck it up because I really just don't want to disappoint anybody else? And it, it does feel hard if it's something you've never practiced because it feels like the both can't coexist. Mm -hmm. When I guess through exploration, you start to realize if you happen to say no, the people who really love and care about you just go, oh, okay. Like it's not the big deal we imagine it to be. Um, are these things that are, I guess, uh, are noticeable changes and developments throughout that ED recovery of, okay, well, I might know what I need right now, but how the heck is anyone around me going to accept this? Completely. And, and you highlighted something so important in that it takes space for it to even emerge because there hasn't been a stage for these alternative ideas to come through when it is our identity. It's like, well, I think... I think I do want to do this or I think that is my passion because it's what we've known for so long so having having enough space and opportunity to see what else might come to the fore and attuning often people with eating disorders are quite disconnected from their bodies you almost have to be by definition to be able to go through an eating disorder to tolerate it we have to disconnect from our bodies so the the nuances of emotional feedback and um, perception in our bodies as to what we need and what's good for us isn't isn't feedback or even privy to perhaps for quite a long time mm -hmm. so it, it is very much um, an edging process and a careful process that can't happen quickly because it's almost like having to build an alternative scaffolding to risk the security of the structure that you're dwelling in and then rebuilding something that you can live more permanently in and we can't we can't just come in with a wrecking ball and expect mm. that we're going to survive and that's when people will really go into self-protection whether that's denial or sinking more deeply into the eating disorder or disconnecting from treatment it's actually an intelligent thing probably for them to do that because if someone's coming in saying we're going to dismantle this whole thing as quickly as possible it's not a psychologically safe thing to do and if there isn't trauma prior to that experience, that, that experience itself would be traumatic and, and then be something else that we need to eventually um, heal through and work through in addition. I, I love the imagery that I got in my head when you said the scaffolding of, okay, the building we're in isn't, it's going to come down soon enough. We know that we're going to live in there for as long as we can, but it, we, we know it's not as stable as we like and having that scaffolding there just as a substitute until we can build this new beautiful building. Um, because I guess that's sort of what it feels like. And for anyone listening to the podcast going through this right now, you might find yourself sort of jumping from the broken down building to the scaffold, back into the broken down building, mm -hmm. back onto the scaffold and going, gosh, why don't I just stay on the scaffold? It's safer there. But 
it's that delicate dance of you kind of need to feel unsafe in the safe space in order to keep progressing forward. Um, And, you know, that's probably something nice for us to sort of leap into is it's not a walk in the park process, but there is definitely um, the capacity to really nurture somebody through it. So there is the, I guess, testing the water, um, but not doing it in a capacity where the person feels so much resistance that they don't even try or that it's not challenging enough that there's no point. Um, is there sort of a delicate dance? And I guess that's where you could link it into the relationship of the, the person seeking additional help and them having a really good relationship to openly communicate so that we can define, okay, what's a big enough step that we are moving forward, but not too big that you go backwards? Yes. And that's that that point of safety and feeling safe in your body as you go through change enough so that it can be integrated and then it can be something that you seek out again and know, you know, how to do that, how to get through that terrain in a in a safe enough way. And it's it's so important that people feel respected in that and that can still leave room for being challenged or being offered another point of view because eating disorders often are very blinding and they block out our periphery and they um, they usually kind of narrow down what feels accessible and doable. But in that relationship with the, the person that's supporting you to change and hopefully additional people around you, then that can begin to be explored, but it does it does have to be done so in a way that isn't annihilating to our sense of self and isn't shaming as well because often shame's a big thing in eating disorders too and when there's when there's high expectations of pace of change or what the change is actually going to look like um, and when that's conditional it can also invite reshaming experiences so we want to be really mindful of, of how to trade forward and and again why the same prescription isn't suitable for everyone and I guess that's something that can be really detrimental to a person's own recovery experience is if there is an expectation on what their recovery looks like Um, because as you were saying earlier there is so many layers to I guess the purpose behind the eating disorder because there is so many elements where we're kind of trying to shield ourselves for external things and there's also the capacity that it there is processing time involved with the new things that we learn and the new things that we need to explore and and the new things that we might not be willing to explore like as you said sometimes it's about just opening yourself up to alternative perspective and at the start you might not even be willing to see that perspective and it could take you time to jump into that those shoes and then that could mean that for a couple of weeks you're kind of staying somewhat the same but then once you've created the space to actually have a shift of perspective then you might notice a big shift and then and a big change that you're really proud of Um, but I guess not giving up on the process because you or maybe someone around you feels like you're not progressing quick enough because there is just so much internal processing isn't there and it's it's nothing that someone can make you do. Like yeah. you, you can have the prompts, you can have the information presented, 
you can have alternative outcomes and there's actually so many things that can be offered but it's really up to that internal processor to go okay I I think I understand this I think I can comprehend it I think I'm willing to talk about it because that's the other stage too I might just want to think about it to myself I don't I don't want to share it with you just yet because I'm not even sure I understand it and and that's okay. Like it's okay mm. if some of the things you're experiencing aren't making sense because some of them don't. Like some of these things don't actually make sense. And um, I guess some of that actually is the healing when you start to witness, oh, hang on, that actually doesn't get the outcome I thought it did or it actually isn't giving me the comfort I thought that it did. And sometimes that happens inside before we can share it with a, a support person or the world mm. um, and it's just it feels like such a definitive timeline so suited to the individual and their lived experience absolutely yes there, there's a, a model for change and like we're familiar with the denial pre-contemplation contemplation action and we recognize these stages also that they're not linear that we jump from one to the other and and dip our toe into action and run all the way back into denial and however we need that to be to eventually get ready enough for more long-term change but it it is a really intimate space of exploring things that you thought were just true or that is, is everything you've known about yourself the world how you've made sense of things and there is a there is a principle in psychotherapy a suggestion not to talk too much about therapy um, at least straight away after a session because it's a little bit like that expression too many cooks for the broth that very very well intentioned most often um, a carer might I say you know how was therapy today and mm. someone might relay it the ideas haven't formed yet the insight hasn't had a chance to come through yet and with that person inputting their interpretation or something they think you should think about or it starts to change what might have been possible it's like a little sapling getting getting pulled mm. into different directions it won't become what it might have been able to be and so just having having that mindset of trust really in what's possible to come through and and really like like the body in so many ways it can be very hard to discern exactly what's going on until something is externalized that we might not know and so we have a muscle injury we don't really know how it's going or it feels like for a long time you're doing the treatment and seeing physio, physio and doing the things you need to do and it's not really getting better and then all of a sudden it does mm -hmm. and the, the muscle tissue has been stitching itself together behind the scenes really subtly all of that time and then right at the end you have quite rapidly increased functionality and use I think psychologically we're very similar to that it's it's all happening so subconsciously and we, we can't really get in there and tell exactly where we're at that it can then sometimes quite quickly come through and all of a sudden things constellate and we kind of uh, rapid fire through a chapter of work or the last phase of recovery or a part of recovery and we would not have been able to do that if we started putting conditions on the time that was taking more space and was more uncertain and you're so right like in that murkiness we need it to just kind of be messy and murky and unknown for 
the most valuable insights to come through. And the more we go in looking for particular things or wanting a particular outcome, we might shortchange ourselves yet again. Yeah, I love that you brought out the particular outcome because I know that's something that presents itself heaps in, in this community, especially for the HA side of things as well, which is I just need my period at the end. Like I just need it. So can we just fast forward all this thinking stuff and all this nutrition knowledge and, and all the rest of it and just, just I just want it back. Can yeah. we just do this? And I, I guess that's the, the beauty in it, which is the fact that you really can't achieve it unless you've learned the lessons. Like there's no slingshot. And I do believe things happen for us, not to us. And um, I guess the blessing I see in my HA journey and, and a lot of the women here is that, I was forced to learn lessons that I would not have learned otherwise. Um, and even in my lived experience, a lot of the things I went through as an adult, I went through as a, a teenager because I was a gymnast and um, that whole identity with being a gymnast and having muscles and being lean and all those sorts of things. And then I stopped and I had like a breakdown and not really a breakdown, but it was my world got flipped upside down and, I found myself again in training and dieting and bodybuilding and competing. I was like, yes, this is my closest version of a gymnast. Yes, I've got it back. And the praise I'm getting is all the same. Like, yes, this is me. Um, and then literally I, at the time I had no idea, of course, but I look back now and I think I literally had to learn the lessons I didn't learn as a teenager um, because my, my story repeated itself and I guess you can see that happen in other people's lives in different areas where certain circumstances keep repeating themselves, whether it be a nasty relationship or financial hardships or um, body image issues. And I, I do believe that a big part of that is you might have resolved, I guess, surface value issues, like textbook kind of stuff but you haven't done the real deep inner work that could be rewriting thought processes, rewriting behaviours, learning new perceptions of things because once you resolve those things or create something new is when you really heal this problem that keeps coming up and then it just disappears. Thank you for sharing that because it's, it's such an incredible illustration of how it will reinvent itself. And the word that came to mind was recycling. It's like almost mm. we can break down that material of what got to a point of really not working one way or the other. But it's kind of we just use the same material to rebuild the next story or the next idea. Mm. And perfectionism can be so sneaky amongst that. I think perfectionism in that recycling process where it, it will, even if it's outside of, of eating and, and body experiences, that okay, well, now you're going to you know, work yourself beyond your limits and also be disconnected from your body with the workload you're taking on and the, mm -hmm. the um, anxiety that you're recruiting to be a high performer in your work, for example, or is going to take place over here in means of hyper-socialising and, and having a lot of people kind of needing you as such or... Um, being almost perfectionistic in the standards you have as a friend, it, it is kind of the same. It's the same, um, it's the same dynamic or system that we're in in a psychological sense, even though the symptomology of it can look really different. And that's where 
people can be cut short if they do that kind of one, two, three approach to treatment where maybe they are weight restored or maybe there is some temporary gain where they do get their period back. But there's so much missing from that being what it could have been for them and inevitably one way or the other, how could it not resurface and be equally limiting in the same or a different part of life? I love that you brought up the the weight restored side of things though um, because I'm sure as you would have witnessed so many times is that it's tend to be seen that if your weight restored problem solved everything's okay and sometimes it comes from a medical perspective like I've heard of women who have been inpatients and that was the goal I was just get their weight up with in whatever way or shape or form you can and as soon as they've hit whatever weight send them home they're fine um, and I think perhaps that's why the general society tends to think that way because it's a very old way of treating eating disorders is just get their weight up so that they're fine and, and set them free. Um, and gosh, you know, I even hear it just amongst general conversation with people who aren't in the eating disorder community or HA community or anything where they might be talking about a friend or family member who go, oh, you know, actually no, this is an exact conversation I heard recently, um, a 16-year-old girl who was uh, put as an inpatient for a couple of weeks due to anorexia and she was quite sick. She was having a heart attack and, you know, things got quite bad. Um, she got weight restored. They've sent her home and the parents go, I just don't know what her problem is. She's so angry all the time. And I, I couldn't help but just my stomach just shrieked and I thought, oh my goodness, she's probably so unhappy because she hates herself. She's weight restored and not at risk of having a heart attack, but she's got all of those disordered thoughts haunting her. Plus the fact that she's a size she was not ready for. Yeah. And I'm sitting there hearing this conversation thinking that girl's in her own version of hell. And I don't mean that to sound dramatic, but the thing is when you're in the crux of things, it can feel that way. It can feel like I'm burning here and yes. no one cares. No one wants to throw me a rope or throw me some water. You're just telling me I'm okay. And then added on to that, what hope does that young girl have of saying to her parents, I'm struggling when their only opinion is, oh, God, she's a cranky teenager. Oh, my heart melted. I just, um, you know, how, how, how do we deal with situations yeah. where, let's say, we are drowning? Yes. And we feel like we can't ask for help because of what we look like. And that's where the problem could have been superseded in the first place was I need to look a particular way to fit in. Yes. And now I look healthy. So it, and again, then there's that story repeating itself and we're on recycle mode. I didn't know I was going to say that, but <laughs> um, it blended in perfectly. Hey, um, but what, what do we do there? You know, the world's telling yeah. us we're okay. It's an, it's a, huge issue that we have in the industry and as a social mentality even even people not being as concerned because someone's weight hasn't dropped um, although they're reporting significant behaviors and most importantly feeling significant things that mm. an eating disorder is a mental health experience that has physical consequences sometimes it's mm. not defined by the physicality but that's very much the lens through which it's viewed and evaluated and I think that's very insightful noting that historically it's been treated as with weight as the priority and if people have come into treatment even if the portal into treatment was through 
their GP saying something, whether they did go into inpatient or whether that concern was initially raised because of changes in their body. It's almost like that then becomes the membership card to mm. validation and to being recognised for having emotional needs. So when weight is restored, it feels like that membership card is torn up and it is like everyone else might have some mm. problems or complaints, but there's no real validity to it because you don't look like that person that was scaring us and concerning us so much so that we, we were prompted into action. Mm. Suicide rate for anorexia is actually at its peak when people come into weight restoration. And that isn't surprising with the story that you just retold there because mm. what that what that young person would be feeling and as you um, as you walked us through that feeling of like burning is such an accurate somatic feeling that um, someone might have of actually being on fire of it being intolerable to be in that body in that time and many people have said to me and elsewhere. Um, publicly they would rather die than put on a certain amount of weight or be at a, mm. in a certain body that they would rather be dead than that. Mm. So if that's not illustrating the, the volatility of that situation, it's, um, it's hard to imagine how we could otherwise get our head around it. It's also where that experience itself becomes so traumatising. And I'll pause to say as a disclaimer here that it there might be occasions medically where there is no other option and I understand that that mm -hmm. saving someone's life has to come first and sometimes mm -hmm. the consequences of that are traumatic but at least we have the opportunity to deal with the trauma to help. persons here yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so there might be situations where it, it is that play out of events but it doesn't take away that it, it is traumatic to have more food pushed onto you then you're ready to eat to have an azogastric tube to mm. be pushed to eat or have quality of life factors and privileges taken away from you to be threatened to be concerned to not be able to use the bathroom without someone monitoring you mm. these these quite dehumanizing experiences and then to end up essentially in your worst nightmare and being in a body mm. that doesn't feel like yours and takes away everything you knew to self-soothe and to regulate yourself so you're then in your worst nightmare without any of the tools that you've come to know mm -hmm. and it's a very dangerous place to be and that's where we need to be most attuned as practitioners and as a society not yeah. least attuned there's mm -hmm. a horrible um paradox in that yeah i just think about um that that people pleasing element too where all right, you might have been weight restored and you can hear the relief of friends and family being like, oh, I'm so, and that's, and I say that in a genuine way, like they are genuinely so happy that you've gained some weight and that you're well enough to go home or you're well enough to go to work or you're well enough to just join them for lunch. Like it doesn't even need to be a dramatic thing. It could just be, um, it still could be very confronting for you, but in the people, your support team's reality, it's like you've made a massive step forward. And then it also can you know, they're praising you and it's like, oh God, I'm so glad they're praising me, but it makes it so much harder for me to tell you that I'm really not coping here. And therefore I don't want to act differently because if I act differently, you're not going to be happy. But at the same time, it's eating me alive, presenting this version of myself to you that I hate. And I guess that's something that does come up in eating disorder recovery when you are trying to recover by yourself is that 
you go, okay, this is the fast track way to doing this. I just need to eat the food. I just need to do X, Y, Z things, which don't get me wrong. Those things help overcoming fear foods and doing things that make you feel uncomfortable. Like, yes, they are. They do. They help. They're wonderful. But I guess um, a red flag to, to be aware of is if you're suddenly stuck in the position where you have the will to do these things because you know that's what you need to do to succeed, but you've got the concrete wall in front of you that is I'm smiling about it and everyone's so happy to see it, but the inner turmoil is growing because the inner turmoil will, it, well, it has the capacity to explode and then you're left with a, your support team having no idea you were struggling because you were presenting yourself in this effortless, easy, sociable way that, you know, to a degree you're sitting there looking at them going, and you know what, I say this from a personal opinion, why can't you tell there's something wrong? Yes. Why can't you tell? Why can't you tell I'm really sad while I'm eating this? Like, why, why aren't you asking me questions? Mm. And, well, no one's asking questions because you're, you're responding to the praise and going, oh, I'm happy to be here. I love this. And everything's great. And then suddenly it becomes so confusing. It's like, well, I'm doing what I need to. Mm. I'm eating what, I, what I, I should be and I'm making myself do it. And then I'm upset because no one's asking me why I feel sad, but I'm not showing them I'm sad because I don't want them to see it, but I really want them to ask. And then all of a sudden it's like your brain just cramps. It hurts. It hurts so much. Um, and I guess I, I love that this is coming to the forefront because so many women feel like ED recovery shouldn't be that hard, but it can literally make your brain cramp <laughs> and it can be really complicated. And would you say that if someone sort of is in that turmoil of I'm presenting what everyone wants to see about my recovery, but inside I'm, this is really hard that there is no shame in asking for external help. Like you don't have to do this alone. It's so important. And I'd also say to take care with your audience because it is an experience that a lot of people will find really hard to relate to and that reshaming and re-silencing by being told but you are so much better off now and mm. you know now if Attila's been protected or it can re it can re-silence again and so often a, a professional that specializes in eating disorders is so important in this way of finding a community of people that are also have had lived experience or are going through recovery at the same time who will get what that's like and maybe maybe you are in a place of deciding that you were going to go forward with weight restoration because you don't want to tolerate cost to your job or relationship or fertility etc but it still feels horrible or it was never what you wanted and you would give anything to go back to being um, in your previous eating disorder state it's it's really important to speak it but to speak it to people who will be able to hear it because part of this conversation I think is about the egocentric nature of eating disorders so they're they're actually considered from a psychiatric perspective eating disorders to be one of the most complex and difficult mental health disorders to treat and part of the reason for that is that the egocentric nature of an eating disorder essentially means that we build our identity in the disorder. 
So when people have anxiety, when people have depression, people have other mental health experiences, they don't necessarily intertwine their identity into that experience in the way that happens with an eating disorder. So when we're getting better, we're simultaneously losing our sense of self. Mm. And that relationship analogy is very apt. It's often used in talking about eating disorders, of it being like a toxic relationship, it being like a breakup, it being like a toxic lover, because people on the outside might say, they're a horrible person, leave them, they're not treating you right, why wouldn't you just go? But when you're in it and then you're invested in every way in that relationship and you feel emotionally very close to that person and have shared experiences and intimacy and um, something that feels irreplaceable with them, it's so much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And when we say to women in, in um, literally abusive relationships, to just leave and to just get out we also shame them and we minimize mm. the tra- chances of them getting out and being able to support them because mm. they can hear that we don't understand and they, they're not getting the support to build the steps they need to be able to leave that type of situation that too is very transferable to eating disorders when you're at that lunch post weight restoration with your friends who are genuinely and from a beautiful place very glad to see you the equivalent is saying you're so much better off without him look at you go this is amazing mm-hmm. but your heart is breaking and all you want to do is call that person hear their voice again and be close to them again that's that's the experience and that's what we need to be sensitive to yeah and you know that that can absolutely be so much what it's like isn't it it's the idea of I know this this person's no longer good for me anymore but I just want them near and I guess that's the the hardest part about people deciding to instigate ED recovery is because it's like, okay, I've had a hard conversation with myself and I can recognize this isn't serving me, but it's not serving me enough that I want to let it go because I can see there's a negative effect, but I still get so much comfort, so much safety, so much control, so many things maybe I'm not getting from the external world, but I can find in myself that, okay, I've got a few side effects, but from what I'm getting from it, it doesn't feel worthwhile breaking up. And that can be a really tough conversation to have with yourself to even just entertain the idea of seeking help. Because one, maybe I'm, I'm not sick enough that anyone's needed to put me in hospital. So the relationship's not that bad. And everyone sees that I'm pretty happy. So again, the relationship's not that bad. And there's days where this eating disorder makes me feel great. You know, I feel so good. Um, and just how you brought up like the other mental health conditions, how it, I'm not going to say they're straightforward. So I don't believe any mental health condition is straightforward in any way, shape or form, but Eating disorders, I do believe, are so much more complicated, especially because we can, to a degree, love having them. And then you sit there and go, I have to be crazy. I have to be. How can I love this thing that's actually ruining my life at the same time? I'm, I'm hiding inside. I won't eat out. I'm throwing out my lunch. I'm, you know, there's so many symptoms that can fall into that eating disorder that that in itself can make you want to implode because it's like, why am I justifying its existence? Why do I want it to stay? Um, It's, 
I guess looking at the support group side of things is where it makes it so important to find those who understand the complexity. Because I feel if we were to have this conversation with, let's say a general population, 100 people in a room, and I've got no evidence behind this at all, but I would believe most would turn around and go, are you kidding me? Just go eat. Like you're driving yourself crazy. And I guess going back to shrinking emotions, um, picking and choosing people that one are willing to hold space for when you're running in circles. Because even as I say this out loud to you right now, I'm like, oh my gosh, I still spin out when I relive those past experiences of how I used to try and be like, no, you need to change. But why? You really like it. Well, it's doing this, but it also does this. And, And it was such a back and forth and it was all helpful. It was all very helpful to get me to where I needed to be. But if I was shutting myself down, I never would have gotten to where I needed to go. And I also imagine that if I sought out help and wanted to share it all out loud, um, having people who weren't willing to listen to me spin would have meant I never would have recovered because sometimes you need to just let the spin happen because you'll find an answer somewhere. It just could be right in the center. And I just think of um, like wool unwrapping. Like at some point you will get to the end, but who knows where it is? You can't see. You can't see the end. You just know that it's unfolding um I I guess when you're in sessions with clients do you find sometimes it's really helpful when you just let them spin and you just hold space and because it's such a troubleshooting process Mm. yes a a collaborative spin (laughs) a supported spin um because it is that like that mythology of someone won't recover until they want it you can't really help them until um they want help it's I mean there's a there's a thread of respectfulness in that which I'm um very much in agreement with but with eating disorders it doesn't usually look like that like people aren't usually ever completely ready for recovery they might get ready to dip their foot in and it leads to something else and it leads to something else and where they think they're going at the earliest stages isn't usually where they end Mm. up it's it's very much the case when you think about something like depression which as you say is its own minefield and its own hell for people that um go through it just one difference is in the early stages of depression, people usually reflect on that experience and say, I loved it. I bet that early mm. bit was that really worked for me until it got to this point, or it wasn't until it started and taking away X, Y, and Z. And then I really realized it was dangerous. Whereas in eating disorders, very often the early stages are a honeymoon period of sorts. It is, Mm. it can feel like you've discovered some sort of magic that allows you to finally have these things you couldn't have before, be be part of a, a club or a way of being validated or a way of finally ticking all the boxes or having this body you never thought was going to be available to you and having the social reinforcement of that. why would that not feel incredible and why would we not scramble to keep that when we've had something so affirming to be really scared of letting that go and that's there's intelligence in that not to get Mm. that up easily and so 
that process I think you're speaking to of kind of spinning around readiness and going back and forward is a really important process of readying that needs to be supported and respected and if someone put like a use by date on that and said which people do mm-hmm. um you know you need to make up your mind about whether you start treatment by mm-hmm. xyz date then you know we're not we're not going to take this seriously we're not going to help you or we need to be this recovered by this point in time it's making huge assumptions without any data on what that person's process actually needs to be mm. Um, thank you for also mentioning the the controlled spin because I I was sharing I guess some of my personal experience with that and as the audience would know a lot of the healing that I did I just did by myself I I sought out the help of a psychologist once and I very quickly got the impression they didn't get me and from a personal perspective just for anyone listening who might be like oh do I get help do I not get help all those sorts of things while I can sit here and say that the spinning I did find answers yes there was also many, many times where I spun out of control and ended up in a panic attack or crying and shaking on the floor or unable to resurface to the world for an hour or two because I was just so in my head that probably wouldn't have occurred if I had the support, I like the psychological support. So let's say I had come in and had a conversation with you about this. I probably could have gotten to the answer that I needed but without the panic attack attached. So I guess, because that's one thing I always want to be cautious about when I share the podcast is I'm always going to tell the truth about my experiences. And yes, I did get to the outcome by working through these things, but uh, I can very easily say that the process could have been so much better and somewhat faster and more efficient if I had have found that supportive person to to spiral with me and, and help, I guess, put some bubble wrap around around the edges so and also knowing that there's no shame attached to not being able to do it by yourself because honestly in hindsight if I was to go through the process again I I should have been more persistent to find my support person um but you know everything happens for a reason I'm so grateful things worked out the way I did um I always feel it's such a sticky spot when things like this come up in the podcast because I don't want to portray one's any more wise than the other because either way, it's a personal, it's a self-discovery process mm. either way. But um, I do believe that given the complexity and the raw emotions that come up, that if you can just find that person that can really hold space and be there with you and you know, understands what you're feeling, they don't even have to have experienced it themselves, but you, you just get that sense, don't you? You get the sense when you're sharing something with somebody and they are with you and it doesn't need to be a physical touch on the knee or the hand or anything like that it's just it's a it's a real emotional thing and if you're currently seeing someone and you leave they're going oh like it was helpful but oh like there wasn't that connection that we're talking about now I encourage you to keep seeing the person you're seeing but try and test out some other people and see if you can find that person because if you do oh my goodness fireworks it's, yes. It would be such a different experience because I even find it, um, let's say when, I, when I'm talking with you right now, I feel something. Yeah. There's something that really clicks and connects and allows for a really deep conversation. And I speak to plenty of incredible women and um, even in day-to-day life, plenty of amazing people, that people give off different feelings. 
and the uniqueness of the feeling I have while I chat with you right now is unique to you and it, it does exist. And if you haven't found it yet to anyone listening, please keep searching because you will find it. Um, and perhaps you're listening to this right now and you're feeling it with Jacqueline as she speaks. So um, I will do the show note thing at the end, but absolutely you, you will have that capacity to find someone and make this process somewhat easier. Thank you for saying that, Jade. I, I likewise feel an affinity with you and I think it speaks to the the uniqueness of relationships you know rather like dating again is um, <laughs> that is that you know someone could be great on paper but you just don't spark with them and the next person you do and it's um it's about finding someone that you know even the tone of your voice when you were describing each scenario of the practitioner it's like yeah, it's helpful and there's that tone in the voice and then there's like pow yes they get it they get me this yeah. is good and seeking that out I think is one of the best investments that one can make in their recovery process and knowing that you deserve that and mm -hmm. you're worth fighting for that as a standard um, and not putting up with with much less than that is part of the building of a new narrative that is recovery yeah I, I love the building of a new narrative because that's what it is it's um it can feel like the reckoning but really it's such an incredible space for growth and transformation and oh my goodness I just guarantee any of the ladies that are currently going through it like once you're through the mud oh it's beautiful it's so beautiful but um sort of like the lotus flower isn't it it's like you've got to go through that murky water to have that beautiful bloom at the end Thank you so much for listening in on today's episode. I hope you absolutely loved it. Um, I will leave Jacqueline's information in the show notes. If you want to find her on Instagram, it's wings underscore and underscore quill. Um, and she's also got a website as well, which I will leave there for you. Um, as always, if you have enjoyed this episode, if you could like, subscribe or share it with someone else who would enjoy it, that would be amazing. And if you would like to connect with me, for a friendly chat or to have some assistance with your HA and recovery, by all means, you can reach out to me on Instagram at jade with a double E dot Cameron. Um, and I've got the link tree there as well. So thanks again for being here. I hope you loved it. And I can't wait to see you in the next one.